I don't have a big long passage to read so much at the beginning, but eventually we're going to get to Genesis chapter 2 and look at a little bit of that as well as Genesis chapter 3. So if you have a Bible or you have a Bible on your phone, you can go ahead and pull that up. I'm going to be using the NIV because I forgot my Bible and this was the only one besides the New King James that was sitting over there on the shelf. Um, except for a Spanish Bible, which I can't read. So, uh, so we'll be doing the NIV, um, which is fine. I like the NIV. It's the one I grew up using. All right. So we are doing a series this semester on gospel-driven relationships. And even the title of the series um, expresses what I'm, I'm hoping will be clear every week, in particular this week, which is that our relationship with God always is connected to the way we relate to other people. You see this everywhere in the Bible. Relationships, the topic of relationships, is actually central to the Bible. Um, If somebody asked you what the Bible's all about, it would really be a fair answer to say, well, it's all about relationship. It starts with relationship. It speaks about the rupture of relationship with God that spills over into frustration and rupture of every other relationship. And then it's a story about how God does not let that situation end everything, but he perseveres to restore relationship and promises to one day make all things new and healed. And relational categories are the way that's described as well. We're talk, we talk about in the Bible this great marriage feast, which is, of course, a relational thing. So if somebody has told you that the Bible is primarily about doctrines that you need to believe, they've really missed the point. The, the gospel and the doctrines that make sure we understand the gospel, the good news, uh, are there really to the the purpose that we would understand that God wants to marry himself to a people. And if you miss that, and you just think about all the doctrines, you really miss the central point of the Bible. Um, In our freshman girls' Bible study over various years, I can't remember if y'all did this in the fall. Did y'all do the Jesus Storybook Bible, right? So Sally Lloyd-Jones, who wrote that book, wonderful, wonderful book, Um, talks about how the Bible is not just a book of rules. It's basically a grand love story. There is a big picture story that carries all the way through the Bible. Um, And relationships are foundational uh, to understand the Bible, ourselves, and the world we live in. But what we're going to look at tonight is where does the Bible begin? So if the Bible is about relationships from beginning to end, it actually begins in an interesting way. It begins with the story of creation. And you might ask, why is that? Because who we are can only be understood if we understand who God is, because the Bible insists that God made us in his image. So if you don't understand who God is, you really will be confused about what it means to be human. It's so important that before we begin to talk about relationships, we, be, we first talk about what does it mean to be human, and you can't really understand that unless you talk about who God is. And thus the Bible begins with God and what he did, creating mankind in his image, right? The thing is, in our world today, the purpose 
for which human beings were created is often not talked about explicitly. I, I think it's assumed in a lot of contexts. I think whenever people talk about what it means to be healthy or to have healthy relationships or good relationships, they are assuming, whether they realize it or not, a particular view of what it means to be human and what we were made for. That's true. Anytime somebody says that something is good, whether it's a piece of music or a chair or whatever it is, good always implies a telos, a purpose. Good for what? And so you can't really even talk about good relationships and leave unexamined the question of what human beings were made for in the first place. In other words, if the purpose is like Paul Simon sings, I am a rock, I'm an island, if that's the purpose, well, that looks like a very different kind of good relationship than if you believe you were made to be in a relationship with one who thinks you're amazing and to bask in the approval of another. Or if you think the purpose of what it means to be human is to exercise your will to power, then every relationship and what a good relationship is will be the ones in which you dominate and get your way. Do you understand? You can't talk about relationships without talking about the purpose of human beings and you can't talk about that if you don't understand who God is. And so that's where the Bible begins. And it's also important because that's the place where the Christian faith runs the most contrary to the world in which we live. And yet a lot of people don't necessarily see that. Now, there's a guy, Christopher Watkins, he has a, a new book that is just phenomenal called Biblical Critical Theory. I've been reading it and uh, it's fabulous. And he makes this point right at the beginning of the book. He says there are four things that are absolutely key to understand about what the Bible says about God to help frame even what we're going to talk about tonight. The first is that God is personal. In other words, what is, what is, is not the result of random time plus chance plus matter. What exists is, the Bible contends, because it was created by a personal God. And as C.S. Lewis argues in his book, Miracles, the, only the personal can give birth to the impersonal. The impersonal cannot give birth to the personal. Now, you could read more on that if you're a philosophically minded person, you want to understand more about that, I can point you to some things about that. But the idea that God is personal is axiomatic to understanding the way the world is. The second is that God is absolute. Now, the reason this is important to understand is that in the Greco-Roman world, lots of personal gods were understood to exist. They were everywhere, right? But only the God of the Bible was absolute. In other words, not dependent on anything, self-sufficient. So the God of the Bible has this unique quality of being personal, not just an impersonal force, and being absolute, being sovereign, not being dependent. And then, third, God is relational. God did not create human beings because he was lonely. God did not create human beings because he already had angels and they didn't have free will. Of course they had free will, otherwise they couldn't have fallen, right? So there's all these kinds of philosophical abstract ideas that people speculate, but God was not lonely. God was in perfect relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from the very beginning. The ultimate reality is relational. 
Now this is really important to understand because in before the modern world, the real challenge was why do individuals matter? You can even see it in sort of pre-modern paintings. Individuals don't really matter very much. People are, are pictured in sort of generic ways if they're pictured as you know, actual people whatsoever. But in the modern world, not in the modern world, the real challenge is thinking that people are basically autonomous selves. So we have like this trying to fit these two things together. In the pre-modern world, individuals didn't matter. All that mattered was the group or the tribe. But in the modern world, all that matters is the autonomous individual. And that means that community is something that you can't really pursue very effectively. But to, to the degree that you're autonomous and free to do whatever you want, to that degree, you will experience alienation from others. And so the Trinity actually helps us understand this. Here's what Watkins says. He says the pattern that we find in the Bible of the Son serving the Father and of the mutual glory given in the Christian Trinity neither crushes the threeness under the weight of the oneness or destroys the oneness for the sake of keeping the three distinct. Listen to this. Instead, this doctrine of the Trinity sets relationships of mutual service, mutual respect, and mutual flourishing at the heart of reality. Do you know why you resonate with the idea that you should respect one another, serve one another, and that that's key to a good life is because you're made in the image of a God who is relational. It's not like an add-on, it's something that's built into the very uh, fabric of your being, right? And then the last of the four things that Watkins says you need to understand is that God is love. And the Bible doesn't just say that God is loving. It goes out of its way to insist that God is love itself. But this love, as you read the Bible, you find as the story unfolds that it's not this amorphous kind of gooey thing. It actually has particular contours. Nor is the idea that God is in love, God is love, is, in, is not in conflict with the idea that God is absolute the one who made us and tells us how to live. And to that, I want to point you to one of my very favorite verses in the whole Bible. And if you want to look at it, you can, but it's short, and I'm going to read it. It's Isaiah 54, 5. If people ask me, what is the heart of Christianity? I, I would say this verse uh, is a strong contender. And it also is a verse that I think we need to really try hard to keep both parts of it together. And rarely do we do that. Here's what it says. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. There are five things. I'm not going to go into these in any detail tonight, right? Because we're going to get to Genesis. But there are five things I'll just point out briefly. God made us. He is your maker. But he's not just your maker, he's the one who marries himself to you. And that is so important to see the two of those together, because for a lot of people, when they think about God, what they mostly think of is he's this cruel taskmaster who's never satisfied. He tells us what to do. I'm not sure if everything he tells us to do is actually things I would like to do. And I really kind of wrestle with this idea that God gets to tell me how to live my life, particularly with regard to what I do with my body and my relationships. 
And the Bible says God is your maker, but it doesn't just say that. It also says your maker is your husband. Now, what happens if you just love the, he's your husband, but not your maker? Well, you think that basically he just loves me no matter what. But of course, have you ever been loved by somebody who didn't care how you lived? That's not love. That's not love. The most insecure students that I've ever dealt with in 28 years of doing campus ministry are the ones whose parents never put any limits on how they lived. You know that somebody really loves you when they care that you might be destroying yourself, right? So your maker is your husband, and it's so hard to not just sort of pick which of those you kind of like, or it, to, to even find in certain churches one to emphasize but not the other. But the Bible puts them together, and unless you put them together, you don't really understand who God is. The Lord Almighty, there it is, absolute, sovereign. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the one who saves. And he's the God of all the earth. He's not just a private God for just the Christians. God claims he has made everyone, and everyone owes him an account for how they've lived with the life that he's given them, right? Holding these two ideas together, your maker is your husband, is so important. But in our day, in our day, a very different paradigm reigns, not just out in the world, but I think even in Christian churches, because we live in a world that squeezes us in so many ways, in particularly with the idea of what it means to be human. Now, we had um, a, a brilliant guy, English professor from Oklahoma Baptist, did RUF staff training uh, in December. Wendy and I and Joy were out there, uh, out in Denver. This guy, Alan Noble, has written a book, which I commend to you, called You Are Not Your Own. It's pretty straightforward, right? You are not your own. And here's what he says. If you miss the Christian view of anthropology, what it means to be human, what it means to be human made in God's image, then most of Christian ethics, how then shall we live, will really make no sense. And here's what he contends. He says, unfortunately, modern people, including many Christians, experience religion as a kind of clothing that they put on top of their more essential identity to help us become all that we can be, to self-actualize. But there's no way that modern people will let that clothing dictate how they live or make them suppress their core identity that's underneath. For modern people, it feels immoral to not pursue their own happiness, even if it means breaking your marriage vows. That's the world we live in. And unless you understand that that is at work in your heart and in your world, and among some of your friends, even family members, you're gonna have a hard time even being willing to try what the Bible says you were made for. Because the, what the Bible says you were made for is diametrically opposed to that idea. And yet what the Bible says, I think comes across as so crazy and old fashioned, it's hard to even embrace it. But, <laughs> What the world is holding out there, this idea that your own happiness has to be pursued at all costs, leaves for a pretty wretched way to live. Now, this example, I think, is so sad. 
And what's extra sad about it is I don't think these words from Adele seem sad to her. I don't know if you saw this, in 2021, she released her latest record, she was interviewed by Oprah, and she said this, talking about her new record. She says, I wanted to explain to, well, sorry, I gotta set this up. So her, new, her latest record is all about her divorce, and she basically wrote a record to explain to her son when he gets to be 20 about the divorce. Here's what she said. I wanted to explain to him through this record when he's in his 20s or 30s, who I am and why I voluntarily chose to dismantle his entire life in the pursuit of my own happiness. That's incredible. If you're wondering what led to her divorce, because the Bible says there are lots of valid reasons for divorce, so don't mishear that, okay? But here's what she says. It just wasn't right for me anymore. I didn't want to end up like a lot of other people I know. I wasn't miserable, miserable, but I would have been miserable had I not put myself first. But yeah, nothing had happened bad or anything like that. That is so heartbreaking. And what's extra heartbreaking is many people hear that and say, yeah, go you, put yourself first. And then they wonder why all of their relationships fail to satisfy. I was talking to Mikey about this, um, and, and he mentioned, I thought it was pretty brilliant, and I, I actually brought, ran it by my neighbor, and he thought it was pretty profound, too. Um, we were talking about themes, these two themes that really are in conflict, and yet you find them over and over again in a lot of modern songs. The first is kind of what Adele is expressing here. Be loyal, or sorry, be free to do whatever you want and need to do for your own happiness. You have to be free to pursue your own happiness. But the other theme that you find, particularly in Taylor Swift, but everywhere, is you better be loyal to me or else. Right? Don't you betray me. And yet, of course, how can those two things work together? Because there will come a point in which your own happiness will be in conflict with keeping vows that you've made. Wendy and I went to a wedding not that long ago. Um, that, that, again, it was, I think, the officiant who pronounced the, the two people married meant this as a liberating thing, but it ended up, for me, being incredibly sad. And they pronounced the couple life partners for as long as they wanted to hang out together. I just thought, oh, is that liberating? Is that liberating? A lot of people would say yes, free of this patriarchal institution called marriage. But if the Bible is right, you were made to be committed to and to be secure in a relationship where God has married himself to you. All right, well, what does the Bible say about all this kind of stuff? Because I think we need to hear what the Bible has to say. If you have uh, on your phone, you want to look at Genesis 2, it's basically three points. Relationships are what we were made for. <laughs> um, relationships are what we were made for. Relationships are a mess because of sin, but God is not through with us yet. So there is hope. Relationships are what we're made for. You see this in what God says in Genesis 2.18. He says, God said it was not good for man to be alone. 
Now note that this is before sin has entered the world, okay? This is before Eve has been created. Um, God says it in a way, and the story is told in a way that you would not miss this point. Whoa, not good? Because the whole story has been going along, this, this, that God did this, and it was good. God did this, and he saw it was good. God did this, and he saw it was good. And it was not good that man was alone. That should stop you in your tracks when you're reading this. Whoa. Now, the reason that that's such a big deal, again, is God, or sorry, Adam has God all to himself. When I hear a lot of Christians talk about their relationship with God, it seems that all we need is God himself. And yet Adam had God all to himself without sin, and God said it's not good. What does that teach us? What well, teaches us right here from the creation, if you have God in your life, you still need people. God says that. Again, I've met so many Christian students over the years who seem to think that you need to become totally content with God by himself before you can ever enter into a dating relationship or marriage. The Bible doesn't teach that. It's what we call super spiritual. It's like more spiritual than, than God or the Bible lays out. The Bible does not pit relationship with God against other relationships, and it says that God is not enough because God himself said that, right? And it's not because of sin. Uh, now, I, I think there are different ways that we resist this in the church and outside. The first is, um, you know, this kind of what we call super spiritual nonsense. Super spiritual is basically people that say this, and maybe I suspect you've probably heard this. If I have God's love, that's all I need. If I have God's love, that's all I need. Now that sounds very true. You might even want to bring me up on charges of heresy for saying that that's not actually true. But it's not. It's not actually true. And it's really difficult, of course, to hold up marriage and singleness, both as good callings of God. And particularly in the church, I know because I was single till I was 33, the only single pastor on staff at a large church and used to hear all the time, the pastor would mention from the pulpit, well, no revival has come and Kevin Twitt takes a wife, right? I know that churches are usually awful for single people. They are, because they find it difficult to hold up marriage as a good thing and also singleness is a good thing. But the Bible does both, but even single people need significant relationships, right? And you do here. God has made us in such a way that we need others. Then there's the, the, the maybe a more cynical version. I, I love this line from um, Little Women, the 2019 version. You guys like that movie, right? Yeah, I thought it was profound. Um, yeah, I, I got a whole little thing I can tell you more about like how they got all those insights about the other books that she wrote because uh, I read the biography of these two Jewish ladies that discovered her alter ego and found all those books. It's a really fascinating story. Anyway, um, here's what Joe says in the movie. Women have minds and they have souls as well as just hearts. They've got ambition and they've got talent as well as just beauty. I'm so sick of people saying that love is just all a woman is fit for. I'm so sick of it. But I am so lonely. But I am so lonely. 
Now, I was reading about this because uh, in one of the reviews when the movie came out on uh, what used to be Mockingbird.com, I think it's just Embird.com, what's interesting is in the trailer, they actually cut out that last little bit, but I'm so lonely. Which actually, you know, the lady doing the review was like, they definitely got me to the theater. It was a wonderful movie, you know, in, in so many ways about humanity. Why did they feel that they needed to cut that out to get people to go see the movie? Why did they seem to, to be able to want, need to point, paint Joe in this one-dimensional way as sort of this angry, you know, woman who wouldn't be put down and put in a stereotype or in a box when she actually articulates this profound dilemma at the heart of what it means to be human, right? C.S. Lewis, I think, captured that dilemma so well. Maybe you've heard uh, these words from his book, The Four Loves. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. But that's the dilemma, right? To love is to be vulnerable. And we also see, of course, just briefly, that we are made for relationships in what Adam says. As it goes on, right, God knows that it's not good for man to be alone, but Adam doesn't know that. And so what does God do so that he will experientially come to the understanding of the truth? He basically says, go name all the animals. And in the Bible, naming is not just putting sort of a random label to things. It really involves understanding the essence of a thing. And so it is really the basis for scientific inquiry, if you actually want to know. And he does this. And what does he conclude? For man, there was no suitable helper. So now he knows experientially what God already knew. It's not good for man to be alone. And what does God do? Well, he creates woman. And Adam breaks out into poetry. It's the only example of speech, human speech, before the fall, and it's poetry. Isn't that cool? Uh, William Cooper, the great hymn writer and Christian poet, believed that poetry was what we were made to speak in before the fall, that it was what pure, pure you know, human speech was about. I've always thought that was really interesting. Um, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, right? And, and I wonder if that's the way you think of Christianity, uh, as embracing that kind of excitement over seeing his naked wife, because that's what the Bible records without shame even though a lot of people in the church probably haven't pressed that point. That's what the story says. Is that your understanding of Christianity, right? But relationships with one another are not enough either, even when they're good. So it's not just me and God, but it's also not just me and other people. We actually need both. And the problem today is for many people, they've put all their hope in human relationships, particularly friendships. Tim Keller, in his book on 
marriage, talking about this idea and how, the, how many Christians seem just captured by this idea that they need to find their soulmate, which is really interesting to understand the history of where that idea even comes from, because it is of pretty recent vintage and dubious origins. But he says this, never before in history has there been a society filled with people so idealistic in what they were looking for in a spouse. That is actually indisputably true. And it is worth asking maybe how even online dating has contributed to the idea that the perfect soulmate is out there if only technology could help us to find them, right? The Christianized version that God has one perfect person for you, I think is hard to resist, but one that I'm not sure the Bible supports. Well, that's why we need relationships, and the Bible speaks about it. But sin, of course, has made a mess of relationships, and the story goes on, right? And, and we see here how the vertical and the horizontal relationships are linked. The, what you do with God, the relationship you have with God, will always play itself out in your relationships with other people. When you look at Genesis 3, when sin comes into the world, Adam and Eve are hiding, right? And when God speaks to them, and ask them what happened, what do you see right away? Blame shifting. They're alienated from one another. They're blaming each other. They have fear, not just towards God, but towards one another. And God tells the woman in Genesis 3 that your desire will be for your husband, and it, or it could be he, the Hebrew here is ambiguous, and I'll tell you why that matters, it or he will rule over you. So right here, you see that sin coming into the world has not just affected their relationship with God, but it's now affected their relationship with one another. What, what is God talking about here? It's the idea that the desire for the husband either will rule over the woman, in other words, an over-desire that will make her easily dominated, or there will be a desire for her to rule over her husband and where they were created to be helpmates, to be working together to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now there is conflict and clawing at one another. We're trapped you know, by two competing demands after the fall. We long for community because it's what we were made for, but we so struggle to give up autonomy and independence. And real community is not possible without sacrificing individual freedom. I'm not talking about being dominated in abusive, you know, destructive ways, but to the degree that you insist on being able to do whatever you want, to that degree you will be alienated from other people. It's inevitable. Doesn't take long, of course, for Adam and Eve to feel how broken everything is. As um, Eve has the first child, Cain, what does she say? Genesis 4.1, you can look there. It says, the Lord has given me a man. Now, the Hebrew is actually interesting. And I actually like the, the King James here. It says, lo, or behold, because that's there in the Hebrew. Behold, the Lord has given me, and the definite article is in the Hebrew. The Lord has given me the man. Do you know what's going on here? Eve thinks that the one promised who would crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3.15, that promise has come. 
She thinks that he's the man. Doesn't take long before she realizes he's not. And so she names her next son Abel, which in Hebrew is Hevel, which is the word that Ecclesiastes uses when it talks about how all of life is frustrating or vanity. So now the reality of the brokenness that sin has brought into the world has come home. But the story goes on. And that's where we conclude tonight. The good news is that the fall is not the end of the story. I really like to say this all the time. The good news is that Genesis 3 is not the end of the story. It should have been the end of the story. But Genesis 4 could have been the end of the story. When, when one brother kills another. And then Genesis 5 could have been the end of the story. We call Genesis 5 the death chapter. Because it says, so-and-so lived so many years, and then he died. So-and-so lived so many years, and then he died. And, and he died, and he died, and he died. But Enoch walked with God, and he was no more. No explanation, but just a tantalizing hint that death isn't the only possibility. Right? And then Genesis 6 comes. And again, God saw that all the intentions of man were only evil all the time. That's pretty strong. And again, you would think, okay, well, then that's it. But it goes on. You have the story of Noah. You have the ark, right? On and on and on. Every chapter in the Bible, there's plenty of reason for God to say, that's it. But he doesn't. The story of the Bible is a story of God's perseverance. And you see this as God pursues them in their hiding. I hope you understand, God never asks questions because he needs to know the answer and doesn't know it. He asks questions, he asks questions so that we would reflect on what's going on. He knows where they are, but Adam and Eve, they don't really know where they are, right? The first part of God's pursuit is to call them and to call us to see what a mess sin has made of things and to turn back to his welcoming embrace, to come out of hiding, to come into the light as we see the one who pursues us no matter what a mess we have made of relationships. And then we see his commitment to rescue them in the provision he makes to cover their shame. This is down in verse 21. He makes clothes for them. But don't miss this. Something had to die for their shame to be covered. Again, it's foreshadowing a sacrifice that is going to come and be seen even more clearly in Jesus. Because ultimately our hope for relationships is that God has not given up on pursuing a relationship with us no matter what the cost. And for God to restore us took more than him telling us how to live. It took more than him giving us just incredible wisdom about relationships. The Bible's full of incredible wisdom about relationships. But we need more than that. We need one who died in our place the only thing that can give us the kind of security that can, we can put down our arms, you know, kind of sort of put our claws back in and actually love one another because we have the security of God saying, I would rather die than live without you. Nothing, nothing can set you free like that. This is why Jesus said in John 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's what we're gonna be talking about this 
semester. But for Jesus to do that, do you understand, for our relationship with God and with others to be healed required the greatest relational rupture of all time. Paul Tripp puts it this way, the shattered relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the cross provides the basis for our reconciliation. No other relationship ever suffered more than what the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit endured when Jesus hung on the cross and cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You've had relationship rupture. I know that. You've never had a relationship rupture like that. But Jesus was willing to be the rejected son so that our families would know reconciliation, so that our relationships would know healing. He was willing to become the forsaken friend so that we could have loving friendships. Because what makes it so hard to have relationships in this broken world is fear and unbelief. And the cross comes and does battle with both of those things so that we can lay down our arms so that we wouldn't have to live in a cocoon of self-protection. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us that really matters? That is hope. And that's what we're going to talk about this semester. So I hope you stick with us. I'm going to pray and then we're going to come and sing a final song.